there, everyone. It is Nurse Mo. Welcome back to the Straight in Nursing podcast. And today we are on episode 124, talking about chest tubes and taking care of patients who have chest tubes. So I don't know about you, but the first time I took care of a patient with a chest tube, I was really nervous. So I want you to feel a little bit more confident with some tips and some good basic background knowledge. Before we hop into that, it is my habit to do a listener shout out at the beginning of every episode to draw attention to those of you who take the time to send in a review. It totally makes my day, you guys. I read every single one of these and I just want to give you a little bit of love back. So this individual whose name is L. Gray, writes, This is hands down my go-to podcast. I'm a pre-nursing student, and every podcast I listen to is interesting, well-presented, clear, and easy to understand. Her material is really helping to bridge the gap between pre-nursing and nursing. I've listened to episodes multiple times, and I know I'll be listening to them yet again when I'm in my program. Thank you so much for working so hard to put this podcast together. I love it. Elle, I just want to thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know how busy it is with prereqs when you're trying so hard to get the good grades that you need to get into nursing school. And for you to take the time to write that just means the absolute world to me. So today we are diving into chest tube management. So Picture yourself, you're in clinical, you're getting report on your clinical assignment, and you see that your patient has a chest tube. Are you going to panic or are you going to feel, I can do this? I really want you to feel that you can do this. And when you're first looking at a chest tube, and maybe a lot of things are going to go through your mind, you know, you might think, well, what if it what if it gets dislodged? I know we talked about that in lab. And now I'm really scared that it's going to get dislodged. And I'm not going to know what to do. What, what if it tips over? Like all those things that you learned in your skills lab, you're going to start suddenly thinking, oh, my gosh, they could happen. And, you know, like, A lot of people, when you're faced with stress, you can't remember information very well. You might be thinking, oh my gosh, I don't remember what I'm supposed to do. So if you're thinking any of those things or you're thinking that you could, then this episode is definitely for you. So first of all, I want to congratulate you on even thinking that chest tubes are serious business. They absolutely are. But with a little bit of guidance, a little bit of a refresher on what you've probably already learned in school, hopefully you'll walk into your patient's room with a little bit more or maybe a lot more confidence and say to yourself, I have got this, okay? So first, let's talk about what a chest tube is. So a chest tube is essentially a device that's used to drain air or fluid from the pleural space in order to restore the lungs to their normal optimal function. So the commonly used chest tube system that I've seen is called the Pleurovac, and that has three chambers to it. It has a collection chamber, 
It has a water seal chamber and it has a suction control chamber, but they're all together in one device. And the most visible chamber is that collection chamber. It's the biggest because it's collecting the fluid from the lungs. So let's talk a little bit about how a three chamber system actually works. So when you understand how they work, it really goes a long way toward making them less scary. So when you know what you're looking at, you'll also be more adept at troubleshooting should that need arise and hopefully less likely to panic if something unexpected happens. So that collection chamber simply is that. It's collecting fluid from the lungs. So a lot of times this is bloody drainage. It's sanguinous or serosanguinous. And sometimes it's just serous fluid. Sometimes it looks infected. So it can be all different colors. Most of the time it's reddish to pink tinged. Occasionally, it'll just be a pale yellow uh, clear serous fluid. But for the most time, it's going to be bloodyish, especially if the chest tube was placed after a big surgery like a thoracotomy or something like that. The water seal chamber uses water as a seal to prevent any air from going back in toward the patient. But air and fluid can come out from the patient, okay? So think about air bubbles when you're underwater, right? And when you're holding your breath, you're underwater, and you let a little bit of that air out, it just floats right up to the surface surface and releases. But does any air come down to you? No. So nothing's coming down through that water seal. It's a seal, okay? Does that make sense? Um, but it's allowing for air and fluid to come from the patient, and then the suction control chamber is basically that. It controls the amount of suction that we're applying to this chest tube. So because there are a bunch of different uh, chest tube brands, drainage systems, and types, we're not going to go over the specifics of each one. Um, you'll learn about the specifics that you're using in your clinical setting or on the job. It's actually going to be you know, really beneficial if you can get your hands on one and touch it and play with it. So just be aware that there's... Um, different types, but the general concept behind them is all essentially the same. So let's talk now about when a chest tube is used. So chest tubes are typically used after any, any surgery that opens the chest wall. So when the surgeon cuts into the chest wall, air is going to enter into that space. And when air enters into that space, we lose negative pressure. So if you think back to your physiology, okay, get in your time machine and go back, go back to physiology class, you remember that the lungs work on a negative pressure system. And if there's not enough negative pressure, then that lung can collapse and we don't want that to happen. So surgery, like a thoracotomy, like I mentioned earlier, can also lead to blood residing in that pleural space. So we want to get that out as well. So a chest tube helps us do that, okay? It helps us keep the air from entering that pleural space so that we maintain negative pressure and it keeps fluid out of that pleural space as well. And after surgery, a lot of times that fluid is blood.
Any introduction of air into the pleural space could be a reason for the patient to get a chest tube. So this could be uh, due to a trauma or a pneumothorax. Pneumothorax can occur spontaneously in patients who have lung cancer, in patients who have COPD, cystic fibrosis, HIV, associated pneumonias, um, regular pneumonias, tuberculosis, all kinds of situations. Patients can just have a pneumothorax. Trauma can also cause a pneumothorax, and you might see that with a penetrating trauma, like a, uh, a knife stab wound, a bullet, or maybe some projectile from a car accident, even a fractured rib. So lots of situations where the patient could be at risk for air entering that pleural space or have air entering that pleural space, and then we got to use a chest tube to get the air out. Again, blood in the pleural space. This is called a hemothorax. Heme is blood. Remember that. So common causes um, trauma, obviously. Cancer, tuberculosis, that surgery that we talked about a moment ago. Other causes include tears in the vessel walls themselves due to central lines being inserted or even high, high hypertension. And then empyemas, which are purulent fluid in the pleural space, um, that can be an indication for a chest tube. Uh, pleural effusions, which are common in cancers, that would be an indication for a chest tube. And you could even have in lymphatic fluid in the pleural space. So any kind of fluid in the pleural space, not good. Any kind of air in there, not good. We're going to get it out, and we're going to get it out with a chest tube. So you might be asking yourself now, okay, I understand why my patient has a chest tube, and I kind of understand how it works. It's got three chambers. What am I going to do to manage this chest tube safely? Well, I am so glad that you asked that. If your patient has a chest tube, you know, you're managing the patient, but you also are in charge of making sure that that chest tube is functioning properly. So here are some things that I want you to be thinking about whenever you have a patient who has a chest tube. I want you to have your safety equipment ready. And you guys would be surprised to see how many nurses neglect to get their safety equipment ready, even though on the flow sheet in the computer charting system, it has a little space for the nurse to check that the safety equipment is at the bedside. So many times I have been the one to get the safety equipment on a chest tube that's been in place for more than a day, sometimes two, three days. So you want to make sure you have your safety equipment ready. And what this typically entails is two clamps, and that would be the clamps that aren't serrated, they're smooth, two clamps, a bottle of sterile water to act as your water seal if you lose your water seal, and an occlusive dressing. Okay, so those three things are the typical safety equipment that you want to have at the bedside for your patient who has a chest tube. The other thing that I want you to always be doing for your patients with chest tubes is get very good and thorough with your respiratory assessments. And you want to do this at, you know, appropriate intervals for your patient. And that'll depend on the acuity of your patient and what your hospital's policies are. You know, in the intensive care unit, that could be hourly. A med surge floor, it might be every four hours. So make sure that you're doing it and you're not just, you know, 
cutting any corners with your respiratory system. You're going to be very thorough with that. And you're going to be eyeing that chest tube system as part of that assessment as well. And I would even go so far as to say you're going to eyeball that chest tube management system every time you walk in the room, just to make sure it hasn't been knocked over, come dislodged, anything like that. So some of the things that you'll be doing with your, um, you know, your thorough respiratory assessment is part of your head to toe, and you're doing that at set intervals, you know, like I said, hourly in the critical care setting or every two hours, and then maybe more like every four or six on the med surge unit. But I want you to be kind of doing a quick focus respiratory assessment pretty frequently for a patient with a chest tube. And that would be look at their work of breathing. Do they look comfortable? Are they breathing okay? Do they look like they're in any respiratory distress? If they're on continuous pulse oximetry, you're watching that pulse oximetry number. Um, observe their respiratory rate. Make sure, um, you know, if they're having a tachypnea that you address that. It could be that they're in pain because the chest tube is painful, or they could be in tachypnea because their chest tube's not functioning and their lung has collapsed and now they're trying to breathe faster to compensate. And then, of course, their level of consciousness. If they're chest tube malfunctions and say their whole lung collapsed back because their chest tube wasn't working and now they're not getting enough oxygen, their level of consciousness may change. So initially what I typically see is that when the oxygen level is low, initially the patient gets very agitated, very restless, confused, and then becomes somnolent. So if you see that, you definitely want to investigate further. Okay, the other thing that you're going to be super aware of for your patient with a chest tube is that you want to make sure that that insertion site is very um, nice and tidy, right? Nice and clean, that the dressing is dry and intact. So those uh, chest tube insertion sites, so it goes into the chest wall, uh, this physician will typically suture that into place, but it could still become dislodged. There could be drainage around the edge of the chest tube, and you don't want that dressing to get loose if there's drainage on it, and then... Um, you know, the dressing could come off and now you're getting bacteria inside the chest wall where the chest tube is placed. You don't want that. You want to keep everything very, very clean and make sure that dressing is always dry and intact. And, um, you know, you'll see there's a lot of tape on there. The, the, the Tape the snot out of these things because you don't want anything getting in there and you don't want any chance that the chest tube will come out. So you'll be assessing that dressing regularly. You're also going to check for crepitus. While you're assessing the dressing, this is a great time to check for crepitus, also known as subcutaneous emphysema. And this feels like bubble wrap under the skin. And you'll once you feel it, you will always know what it feels like. The first time it might be hard to picture. So if you have a patient with a chest tube, Feel around and search for the feeling of like a little bubble wrap under your fingers, under the skin. And then when you find it, you want to mark the area where it stops. So you kind of have that area of demarcation so that you can monitor if the crepitus is getting any worse. This is something that you would want to let the MD know about. Okay, especially if it's getting worse. I've seen crepitus come all the way up into the patient's face. Okay, so it definitely travels. So you want to just keep an eye on it and monitor that. You want to ensure that the tubing is draining freely. Um, 
That means, you know, dependent loops you want to try to avoid as much as you can. Uh, watch for clots in the system. The MD uh, may need to come and deal with the clots. Um, as a general rule, we don't strip the tubing to get the clots out. This causes too much negative pressure in the pleural space. Um, sometimes you'll see the MD come and do that themselves. The next thing that I want you guys to always be watching for with your patients who have a chest tube is you're watching for the amount of drainage and the quality of that drainage. So the average drainage amount for an adult is about 70 mils an hour. Now this could be different based on what's going on with your patient. If there's a large fluid collection in there and you're putting in the chest tube to get rid of it, right, then it's probably going to be more initially or bleeding after surgery. So the physician will typically have parameters for when they want to be notified after surgery, depending on how much drainage you're having in an hour or in a two-hour period. Um, generally, if it's over 100 mils an hour, and usually we're talking about like bleeding, or you notice a sudden increase in the amount of drainage, then you would want to let the MD know. The usual amount... Um, again, is going to change for each, you know, reason the chest tube is placed, each physician's uh, parameters that they use themselves. So just my point is keep an eye on the amount, keep an eye on the quality. If it wasn't bloody, but now it is, you know, things like that. And then make sure you know in your orders what your parameters are to let the MD know. You also want to make sure that the amount of suction that has been dialed into the machine matches what the MD has ordered. So I know this is a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised um, that it can sometimes get missed. Most MDs order, um, you know, 20 centimeters of water amount of suction, but it can vary. So just double check just in case for some reason you get a, a thoracic surgeon who likes a different level of suction that you don't just assume it's going to be set at 20, okay? You could see an order for it to drain by gravity with no suction at all. Um, this means it would not be hooked up to the wall suction apparatus. So just be aware of what your suction orders are and that it matches what's happening with your patient. The next thing you want to be aware of with your patient is you want to encourage them to cough and you want to encourage them to take deep breaths. And when they do that, you'll see that this helps facilitate that chest tube drainage and it aids in their lung expansion. And then you're also going to be watching the chest tube device and assessing for fluctuation and titling. So if titling is present, then your chest tube is patent. So note that titling will typically cease when the patient's lung has fully expanded. Um, and it's not going to be present if the patient has a mediastinal tube. We're talking about, you know... Um, like a tube for a hemothorax or something like that. But that's another topic for a whole other day. Uh, you'll see mediastinal tubes if you're working like in a cardiovascular surgery ICU after um, heart surgeries. 
However, if you don't see titling, it could be because there is something that has gone wrong, okay? So look for things like dependent loops, look for inadequate suction, look for clots in the tubing, all of which can negatively impact titling. And when we talk about titling, we're talking about that water area. So you're going to see on your chambers and it's blue. The water's blue. And when titling is present, the water rises on inspiration and drops on expiration. If the patient is ventilating on their own, if they're on a ventilator, this will be reversed because with mechanical ventilation, we have switched the patient from a negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation. So when you're assessing for titling, it's on, you can see the water, it's blue. I think that's universal. I hope it is. If it's not, somebody please write me and let me know. Um, But every chest tube I've ever seen, the water is blue. So you can really see it very well. And titling is typically present most of the time. It could cease if the lung is fully expanded or it could cease because there's a clot or a kink in the tubing or a dependent loop that is affecting the ability of the chest tube to be patent. So the water is going to rise up when the patient takes a breath in and drop when the patient breathes out. And you can just say, Bob, can you take a deep breath in? And you can watch for it right then, okay? Again, if the patient's on a ventilator, the opposite will be. So basically, you're looking for the water to go up and down, okay? And then you're checking for air leaks as well. So you want to keep an eye, again, on that water seal chamber. A constant bubbling that is not associated with respiration. So it's just constantly bubbling regardless of if the patient's breathing or holding their breath. That could be a sign of a tension pneumothorax or a few other problems which you can remember with a mnemonic called DOPE. And that's D-O-P-E. And an air leak could be caused by a dislodgement. It could be caused by an obstruction. The P is for that pneumothorax, or E, it could be an equipment failure. So let's talk a little bit about what we're going to do if we have an air leak, and we want to try to figure out why it's happening. All right, so remember those clamps that you got from Central Supply so that you'd have your safety equipment at the bedside at all times? Well, you're going to get one of those clamps, and... With, you know, you're not going to do this as a student, obviously, the nurse would probably do this. But if you're a nurse, and you're, you know, you're refreshing how to do this, basically, you take the clamp, and, you know, make sure that you're covered by hospital policy to clamp the tubing to assess for air leak. Some hospital policies may say never clamp the tubing if you suspect an air leak, um, then just call the MD. And if that's the case, just call the MD. But if your policy says you should check for an air leak first, then you're going to check for an air leak by clamping the tubing in various places. So if you clamp the tubing at the insertion site, so like close to the patient, and assess for the air leak at that time. If that air leak stops in the water seal chamber, then that leak is coming basically from inside the patient or, you know, between where you've clamped it and the patient. Maybe there's a little bit of a leak in that, you know, a couple of inches there. If it does not stop, then the air leak is further down in the system. So to check if it's coming from the system, you progressively clamp the tubing at like, you know, like eight inch intervals or so. 
and go all the way back to the collection device, and that can help you determine where the leak is occurring. You'll notice that the air leak stops when you've clamped between it and the location of the leak. So the air leak stops when the clamp is between the location of the leak and that water seal. So if the leak is coming from your tubing or your collection device, then the fix is really easy. You're just gonna get a replacement. You'll wanna check that your connections at this point are all secure. You know, we typically connect them and then tape them together as well. You wanna make sure there is no tears, no holes in your tubing, and that the tubing is also securely connected to the device. So if you're covered under hospital policy and the MD is fine with you clamping to assess for air leak, you're going to be watching your patient the whole time that you are doing this. If the patient shows even one ounce of respiratory compromise or hemodynamic compromise as you do this, you're absolutely going to stop doing it and notify the MD. Um, again, this varies by facility. It may be allowed. It may not. Definitely as a student... Don't do this at all, okay? Can I say that 500 times? Don't do this as a student. This is just general practice for facilities that have it written into their policy, okay? And then what if the leak is coming from the patient? So in a pneumothorax, you're going to have an air leak that's coming from the patient. That's because there's air in the patient and the air wants out. So you're going to be monitoring this to see if it gets better or if it gets worse. If the chest tube system is patent and hopefully there's nothing else going on, then that air leak will improve over time. So the chest tube systems that we use at my hospital have a numbered chamber ranging from one to seven. So if you guys want a picture of this, I would just I just would Google um, chest tube images and just find a you know what they look like, and you can find one that has this numbering system on it one to seven. And an air leak at level one is considered mild, whereas an air leak more towards that level seven would be severe. So this gives you an easy way to kind of monitor over time how that air leak improves as the pneumothorax resolves. If it isn't improving, well, this is definitely something that you want to let the MD know about. Now, another consideration with that air leak is that it could be coming from the system itself, um, very close to the patient and underneath the dressing. So if you think the leak is coming from the insertion site, from the tubing at the insertion site, you need to take it down and look at it. Sometimes those eyelets are outside of the chest wall. They should be inside the chest wall, but if the chest tube has come out a little bit, those eyelets could be outside of the chest wall, and you would want to let the MD know about that immediately, okay? But if you don't see any obvious signs that the leak is coming from the insertion site or the tubing at the insertion site, then it's likely coming from the lung. Um, you can replace the dressing. Make sure the MD knows what's going on, knows the you know, severity of the air leak, and that you're monitoring for it to improve or get worse. Now, let's talk about some what-if scenarios, those things that you think about, especially when you're faced with a new-ish situation. So, what if the chest tube becomes dislodged? What can you do about that? 
So that is what that safety equipment is for, that occlusive dressing. So ideally, the patient can follow commands, can forcefully exhale, you slap the occlusive dressing on, make sure it's covered, and call the MD absolutely stat, okay? What if the chest tube itself becomes disconnected? So if the tubing becomes disconnected, most policies indicate for you to quickly insert the patient end of the tubing two, like one to two inches into that bottle of sterile water. That creates a water seal while you get a new system set up, okay? So let's say the tubing became disconnected, you know, about four feet down from the insertion site where there's a little connection piece, it got loose, it's disconnected. You take the tubing that's still attached to the patient and you dunk it into that sterile water and that creates your water seal. And you do that while your friend goes and grabs another chest tube um, drainage system for you to connect to your tubing. You would, of course, then let the MD know as well. What if that collection device, the chest tube collection device, tips over? So most of these drainage systems have one-way valves in them to prevent the various fluids and the chest tube chambers from going where they're not supposed to go. The worst thing that could happen is that your drainage in the collection chamber um, spills over into another column, kind of messing up your ability to track the totals for that patient. You still could do it. It wouldn't be impossible, but it would be a serious pain in the butt. So the best thing for you to probably do if the chest tube system gets tipped over is to just simply trade it out for a new um, collection device. Um, in a water seal system, if it tips over, you may need to add more water to ensure that you have the adequate amount, which is about two centimeters of water, and that's super easy to do as well. What if you find a clot in your tubing? That's, you know, one of your assessments is you're looking at that tubing, and let's say you notice a clot. So old school nurse might say strip the tubing. You're not going to do that because that's probably against hospital policy. Um, do not milk or strip the tubing without an order. Now, if the MDs ordered it, then they'll order it typically not to exceed, you know, a certain number of times in a shift or, you know, in a day or whatever. So definitely this is not something that you do without an order because it drastically increases the negative pressure in the pleural space. So if you spot a clot, you might be able to gently squeeze it toward the collection tank chamber, making sure to completely release the tubing in between squeezes. But you also want to make sure that you're covered under hospital policy for this as well. If you're ever, ever unsure, then you can always ask somebody that you're working with. If you're a student, I wouldn't do this at all. I would just alert the nurse that there is a clot in the tubing and let them deal with it and troubleshoot. But let's say you're working um, as a new grad and you're not sure. Go to your preceptor, go to your charge nurse, ask the MD who's managing the patient as well. Always double check. And if you guys ever have that little voice that says, mm, I'm not sure about this, I say, listen to that voice. That's your nurse angel and you always want to listen to her because she's usually right, okay? Um, what if you see a sudden surge of red drainage? So this could be a hemorrhage. You definitely want to let the MD know, stat, patient may need to go back to surgery. 
What if drainage has been going along, very regular, very consistent, and it suddenly stops? Well, this could be because maybe there's a clot, maybe there's a kink in the tubing. Um, check all your tubing carefully, check your connections, and... If you notice that this correlates with your patient deteriorating, you need to let the MD know immediately. And I would also let the MD know if the drainage suddenly stops. Usually what happens is it kind of trickles down and tapers off. But if it's going along fine and then suddenly stops, this could be a sign that there's something going on. And then what if your patient suddenly deteriorates? So if your patient suddenly deteriorates, then, you know, and that could be respiratory deterioration, it could be hemodynamic deterioration, I want you to suspect a tension pneumothorax. So check that the tubing is free of kinks, free of clots, and you need to call the MD stat. So I hope that helps you guys understand the basics of managing a patient with a chest tube and you feel a little less scared of them in the clinical setting. But as always, you want to defer to your hospital policy. If you're a student, defer to your school policy on what you can and cannot do with the chest tube. And if you ever, ever, ever have any doubt, there's always somebody at your facility to ask, either the nurse that you're working with, if you're a new grad, your preceptor, if you're a nurse just working on a new unit, or you haven't worked with the chest tube in a while, you've got friends that you're working with, or the MD that's managing the patient. So thank you so much, you guys. Thank you for spending your precious free time with me today. And I will see you back here next week when we talk about abdominal compartment syndrome. So a few weeks ago, we talked about compartment syndrome in the extremities, where we're going to be talking about abdominal hypertension next week. So come back for that, and I will see you here. And if you haven't yet gotten your January planner for January 2021, I will put the link in the show notes for you to go to the shop and get that so that you can be super organized and prepared for whatever nursing school throws your way. See you guys next week. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.